Right, hello and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. On today, we shall be uh, looking back at the 2015 MotoGP season. Uh, It was quite the season and there's plenty to talk about. Uh, I am David Emmett. Um, I'm at Moto Matters on Twitter. And with me today are Tony Goldsmith. Hello, I'm Tony Goldsmith from Bike Sport News and Asphalt and Rubber. And you can also find me on various social media outlets on my website at tonygoldsmith.net. And Stephen English. Hi, David. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Steve English GP. Right, right. Well, it's been quite a season probably one of the best for years and years and years i think um give us your impressions of the uh, of the 2015 season steve well i think it was probably the best season i can ever remember dave and i think if we were looking back down through the ages you, you would be looking at the golden eras of the early 90s really to find anything that was comparable to, to this season but i think on the whole on the basis of what we saw this was probably the best year ever for grand prix racing tony I think it would be hard to to argue with that. Uh, it's something we've talked about in the past. I, um, in my younger days, used to watch World Superbikes probably more than the MotoGP for obviously for the like, likes of Carl Fogarty. And but since I started paying a lot more attention to to MotoGP, it's certainly the best season I can remember. Well, I mean, I, w- I was lucky. I actually started writing about MotoGP. Uh, started my website in two thousand and six, which turned out to be quite a good year to be writing writing about MotoGP. Um, that was a pretty good season. Two thousand and fifteen better than two thousand and six, you think? Yeah, I think this was a much better year. I think twenty twenty fifteen was probably a year where you had more top class riders, more top class machines, and just better racing than what we've seen in Grand Prix level. I think. 2006, it's a great season. We look back on on it, but Nicky Hayden isn't going to be able to be a rider that you're going to hold to the same esteem as Rossi, Marquez, Lorenzo. Even at the end of the year when you put Pedroza into the mix, there was just four guys able to go at it, hammer and tongs, for the majority of the season. Then you put in that uh, Ducati were much more impressive this year, so you had Ian One really impressing throughout the season. Davizioso was a, a... uh, a contender for race wins as well so I just think that level of competition is something that we haven't seen before and that's what made this year so special then whenever you add into the mix that this was Rossi's 20th season and he was still capable of competing for wins competing for the championship that made it a bit more special I'm sure Tony you'd probably agree that whenever you go out to shoot a race where Rossi's at the front or where Rossi wins there's just a different atmosphere in the in Park Fermi around the track yeah, there's a there's definitely a an improved atmosphere. The the you get a bit of lift from the crowd whenever Rossi's at the front, and um, even if you can't see what is going on at the time, you generally get some sort of idea from the uh, the crowd reaction. Uh, and we've we've seen, I mean, when we went to Misano this year, there was just a huge partisan Rossi crowd there, and the atmosphere was amazing. And when he was running at the front of that race. Um, the lift from the crowd was fantastic, even though, as we've discussed on, on occasions before, I had no clue what was going on. But yeah, and, and even afterwards, just on social media, whenever I shared a, a Rossi picture or something like that, those were the ones that would get the most um, feedback and the most views and things like that. Whenever Rossi was doing well, I think we all we could all feel that, definitely. Were either of you two covering the series while uh, Rossi was at Ducati? Um, I, I think, Steve, I may have seen you around a few times. Yeah, I started going to races in 2010. So this this year was the first time I saw him as a title contender. But 
on the basis of the the few years, or sorry, it was twenty eleven was the first year I, I started coming, and um, this year was the first time that he was a regular contender for race wins, regular podium finisher, and uh, then obviously a title contender. And I think whenever you come into the paddock at first, and you know you've grown up as a fan of the sport, but you see someone like Rossi just struggling. Basically, you go to a debrief, and there'd be myself, yourself, Dave, and a couple of other people, and then contrast that to what we saw at the end of this year and it was just chalk and cheese yeah absolutely I mean uh, I always remember going to Rossi's debriefs when he was at Ducati and um, there was a very different feeling there was also a very different feeling around the track as you say Tony Um, uh, seeing Rossi struggle was always almost painful in a way to actually watch and and, and see it happen yeah I mean to to see such a, a great a great champion um, struggle and his particularly his time at Ducati and um, my first first GP was two thousand and nine. It was the the British Grand Prix at Donington and I would only really get to one if I was lucky two races a year and I, I did go to Bruno uh, the year he was uh, or one of the years he was running on the Ducati but for me back then it was more sort of one occasional race and uh, so. I wasn't there for the for the great the real good times. I wasn't there great deal for the for the struggling struggling times. But to to been there this year when he was winning races and it's a shame slightly that he didn't win the championship. Just from a selfish point of view, to have been involved in it in a, in a year he got his tenth championship would have been great. But uh, that that didn't happen ultimately. But uh, it was it was good to be in, involved and be around when. Uh, and Rossi is doing well and the, the sport gets a lift. Uh, yeah, and history is being made because if there's one thing that, that's for certain, this was a absolutely historic season. We'll be talking about this season for a very long time to come. Yes, ab- absolutely. Um, right, let's just walk sort of uh, very quickly through the season. I mean, it, we, you can sort of split it up into, into sections. Those are the first few races when Rossi seemed to be fairly comfortably in control of the season. I mean, his win at Qatar, of course... Uh, Started off well uh, again, you know, a good battle for uh, between Rossi and this time with the Ducatis, which for me was the uh, the really big surprise to see the Ducatis start start so strongly and actually be competing for podiums the first couple of uh, couple of races. Yeah, I think um, it all goes back to the Sepang tests, David, and like myself and yourself were at Sepang one, and I think on the the second day, like we looked down the paddock and we saw Rossi walking up through to the Yamaha box and you just saw this air of confidence that I had never seen from him before except for whenever you're watching it on TV from when you were before you came into the paddock and I think whenever whenever we saw that the two of us turned to each other and we said this is a year where you know we could see Rossi win a title we could see him win races and by the time we got to Qatar we knew what we were going to see from him we we knew he'd be quick we knew he'd be consistent we knew he'd be able to fight for wins and those early season races, he was he was immense. You know, Qatar was a great performance. I think to an extent, if there was another rider on the Ducati than Davi, I think he may not have won it. But he went out, it was a last lap fight and he takes the win. Then you go to the next couple of races and again, you know, he's just finding a way to grind out results. And the win in Argentina and things like that, they were really just classic Rossi wins where puts another guy under pressure, forces a mistake and takes the win. Yeah, absolutely. I think also, for example, the uh, the the results at 
Argent, uh, Austin sorry, was also quite impressive, given that the Hondas had dominated there uh, previously. Uh, uh, to actually walk away uh, from, from there as he did was, was uh, again, a, a sign of things to come in that he was always going to be, he was on the podium. When he couldn't win, he was on the podium. He was always close. And that consistency was uh, was one of the most, certainly one of the most impressive things at the start of the year. Uh, but going back to the Sepang test, what really uh, impressed me there was the shape that Jorge Lorenzo was in um, when he turned up there. He was slim, he was fit, uh, he looked good, he looked healthy, he was determined, um, he'd trained hard all winter. Um, uh, Yamaha monitored him much more closely in 2015, or uh, during the winter of 2014, 2015. After he turned up at Sepang in 2014, you know, just basically about five or six kilos overweight. Yeah, I remember after the Sepang test, I wrote in MCN that uh, Lorenzo was my title favourite. I thought he was going to be the man to beat. And it was just because he, he showed up and he looked like 2013 Lorenzo. And he was, he was ready, he was fit, he was strong. And just mentally, he looked much more complete. Now, admittedly, over the course of the year... There was ebbs and flows for him, which we hadn't really seen before. You know, usually you see Lorenzo as being very consistent, but this year it was a bit different to that. But he was so dominant whenever he was on form that it all stemmed from that Sepang test where you'd see just this rider come in, complete confidence, complete control of himself. And Yamaha knew what they had this year. Like I was talking to Wilco Zielenberg at those tests and he just said that... Uh, what he saw this over the winter was the same Lorenzo that he had seen for the years whenever he was winning championships and that 2014 was just very difficult for him mentally to get over the injuries from 2013 and really more than anything else it was just mental fatigue in 2014 that Yamaha felt was holding Lorenzo back this year he went in with a clean clean slate and he was ready to ready to win ready to compete and again we saw a mental fortitude that you don't usually associate with Lorenzo as well this year. He had a really difficult start to the year and he managed to come back strong. Yeah, um, that again, that really surprised me just the way, because he had so many uh, things happen to him, events. Uh, every single time um, there was the helmet liner at, um, um, at Qatar, there was, you know, not being able to use the tyre in in Argentina. There was all of these sort of things that happened to him. And every single time he kept on uh, coming back from it, there was the, the helmet, the, the, the visor misting up in, in Silverstone. Uh, and he would, it sort of ebbed and flowed. And he kept on coming back from that, closing the gap, closing the gap, losing a gap. But, but still to keep on going, that was, uh, that was really quite impressive all year. Yeah, I remember at Haret, um I just happened to bump into him walking up through the paddock and you know, we were just talking about the first couple of races and he got very defensive because as he as he looked at it, there were things outside his control that had affected the first three races. It meant that he wasn't able to basically have the points haul that he expected to have, Qatar especially. The helmet line had fallen, he was leading the race. He he you would have you would have had your money on him to win that race, but instead he ended up finishing fourth. Then Coda, he was very sick, and then Argentina, he couldn't use the right tyre. So he just felt that those three races, they really affected him far more than his performance sort of deserved. And then once he got back to Europe, he felt comfortable, he felt confident, and he felt that there wasn't the those kind of outside forces working against him, and that's why he was able to, to win races then. 
But I think he was the whole way through the, the winter, the whole way through those early season races, just to be able to bounce back from one bad race, second bad race, a third bad race was was really impressive from him. Yeah, absolutely. This, I mean, the run of four uh, uh, four victories in a row was just incredible. Uh, you really felt that uh, that the championship was turning again. I mean, could you see this out on track, Tone? Um, well, he was he was quick from the from the outset, wasn't he? Um, it wasn't as though uh, he hadn't been, and um, we saw in Qatar, as Steve said, it, it, had he not had that problem, then um, uh, that maybe the outcome of that race would have been different and. Um, Austin, Austin was a was a different thing altogether, and uh, and I, I wasn't at Argentina, but um, um, but I mean we've talked about before the motorcycle races being confidence, com- confidence is a big thing for them, and if they can uh, point to a reason for for something not happening outside of their control, then that's not really going to dent their confidence too much if they still feel they're riding well. Uh, and then uh, they, they, if they can point to something that's gone wrong, as to, uh, in uh, Qatar it was the helmet lining, uh, it was an illness in Austin, and there was a tyre issue in Argentina. Then, uh, and then they can compartmentalise that and move on, and uh, don't think it affected him a great deal. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, uh, it, as you say, motor motorcycle racing is all about confidence, and it was really clear to see. I went down to stand uh, trackside at Jerez and watched Lorenzo ride, and he just looked absolutely fantastic um uh, totally in control really smooth uh, yeah i think lorenzo's problem is you have to see him close up you actually have to stand at the side of the track and see him uh, see him race uh, mm. to to really get an understanding of what he's doing because his um uh, when you look at him look at look at him on tv it doesn't look very exciting or interesting it's only once you actually get to see him close up that you get a, a a full understanding of exactly what he's capable of doing it's uh it's it's very impressive it's one of the things where um when you're out taking pictures and and being trackside anywhere it's very easy to get swept along in the in what you're doing and uh sometimes it's nice just to to switch off for five minutes and, and actually watch what these guys can do yeah uh, if you've got if you've got the luxury of being able to do that um, and and actually have the presence of mind to think, you know what? I'm just going to stop for five minutes here and just watch these guys riding these motorcycles and the, the things that they can do is just unbelievable. All of them, they're not just Lorenzo, but Lorenzo in particular, like you say, David, he makes it look so easy, but it's really, really not. Yeah, that's the the downside of being of doing this professionally is you don't actually get much time to watch the races, do you? Because you're too busy actually trying to do your bloody job. Well, yeah, exactly. It's, and it's not even just watching the races. I mean, you can watch the race back afterwards, but it's it's you're looking at what they're doing through a lens and um, you're kind of focusing on where you want to take the picture and when they get to the point at which you want to take the picture. And a lot of the time you don't actually spend too much time studying what they're um, What's actually what happening, doing. yeah, what's actually going on on track. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, I mean... It was, uh, I think the big story, especially by the time we get to uh, Barcelona, is the fact that by this time, Marquez was just about completely out of it after what turned into a completely dismal first uh, uh, first few races, struggling with the with the Honda. Yeah. Uh, one one thing to just to go back on when we talk about Marquez is 
I think one of the the best bits of the season was uh, was that lap in Cota for for pole position. Uh, he'd part the part the bike with a problem on the uh, start and finish straight. Nearly broke his ankle jumping off the pit wall and sprinted up pit lane and went out with all that um, adrenaline pumping through him and put in one of the best laps of the year. Absolutely, possibly, yeah, one of the best laps ever. Although there were there was one or two contenders for that one, but yes. uh, uh, absolutely astonishing lap, and to do it after sprinting because he really did sprint down pit lane. Absolutely flat out. Yeah, yeah, just absolutely, absolutely, absolutely amazing. Uh, Steve, what did you think of the uh, of of Marquez's struggles this year? Well, obviously, it took everyone a bit by surprise, but we've. We've sort of seen uh, Honda do this in the past where they've struggled to develop a bike whenever they only go in one direction. And I think last year's success sort of masked an awful lot of the problems they had. You look at the Yamaha last year, it didn't have the full seamless gearbox and they were giving up so much performance under braking. And then this year, once the Yamaha had that bike ready, suddenly the M1 was a much more complete package and that forced Honda then to have to basically override the bike and when you've got someone like Marquez having to do that it leads to leads to issues we saw it in 2013 as well he had an awful lot of crashes Um, he was still able to win the championship that year still able to win a lot of races but he was on the ragged edge and this year for up until Catalonia he was the exact same he had to overstep the mark at times just to be competitive and I think it was a it was a big struggle for Mark just to to learn that maybe riding at 99% was the quickest way to do a 26-lap race, as opposed to just feeling that he was constantly on that ragged edge. And uh, when I talked to him at the end of the season, he he pretty much admitted that uh, this year was probably the most important year for him in learning how to actually be a complete motorcyclist, how to be a complete rider, and get the most out of the bike over the course of 18 races. And I think that's where we're going to see a big change in him for next year. I think he knows that uh, out and out he's probably still the quickest rider in the world, but to be the quickest rider over one lap is very different than being like what Lorenzo did this year and just being effectively the quickest rider over 18 races. And I think next year we'll see a very different Marquez, but we'll also see a very different Honda. I think they still haven't sorted the engine out. It's still very aggressive. They haven't been able to get the electronics to work, but they learned an awful lot this year about how they should be able to tame those things. And you'd imagine that at some point next year, there'll be a much more competitive package. I think for Mark for this year, you'd have to look at uh, the big turning point being basically that crash in Catalonia. He was able then to see that, uh, you know, riding that bike that way wasn't good enough, or at least it wasn't the, the way to win races. If you go to Le Mans, which was when Danny Pedrosa came back from his injury, that's whenever pretty much all the Honda riders crashed and that was where you'd have to imagine for Honda, they looked at it and they said, okay, if we can look at this objectively, our bike isn't good enough and we need to do something to, to try and recover from that. And, you know, by the end of the season, Pedroza had been able to get his, get his bike working well too. So they made some progress with it, but those early season races, that bike was just, it was, it was an animal. Yeah, exactly. It was, um, the problems were, in braking, especially, um, also in acceleration, you you saw that basically saw that all year. Uh, the fact that a Honda is not getting out of a corner first is uh, almost unthinkable. Uh, but that was that was absolutely what was happening. Um, just very very strange indeed. But I think what Mark uh, learnt this year, what Mark has learnt this year, was 
basically the value of coming third. Um, his ambition means that he always wants to win. Um, and all right, occasionally, I think 2013, 2014, wanting to win occasionally caused him to crash out of the uh, crash out of a race. But he was crashing, just crashing out of far too many in the first part of the of the season, and um, that made him realise. And every, of course, every time you crash out, that's another twenty five points you're behind the leader, um, and it makes your job even more hard, uh, even more difficult. It makes winning even more important. Um, and it makes it, yeah, it makes it even harder mentally to actually cope with that. So he was he was having to to try even harder to win at the next uh, race. Whereas if he'd have backed off a little bit and taken third or fourth, then he would have, you know, given away maybe nine points, maybe eleven points instead of giving away twenty twenty five points. So um, yeah, I, as you say, Steve, I think uh, this was definitely the year where uh, where Mar uh, Marquez learnt the most um, moving on to Pedrosa because it, it's just, just to go back to one other thing Dave um, just the one thing about that Honda the electronics were so badly developed compared to their rivals if you remember back to Le Mans there was that great fight between Ian One and, and Marquez yeah. and you'd see them coming out of the last corner and Mark would be pulling this massive wheelie and Ian One would just be riding flat out and there wouldn't be the same issue for the Ducati, which is a really advanced electronics as there was for the Honda. And that's where we saw the biggest change between or the biggest contrast between the two bikes was just being able to see that drive grip that Ianone had. And fair enough, a lot of that comes from the Ducati being the most powerful bike in the grid. But you have to be able to translate that power. And that's where the electronics package came in. And that's what you talk to the Honda riders and, and they will say that the electronics was a major, major issue for them this year. And I think. Le Mans was probably the best illustration of that for a fan to be able to look at it and see the the difference in style for both of the riders. Yeah, I mean, Marquez said all year that he was having to use the front uh, and, and Crutchlow the same, but having to use the front end a lot, a lot more, having to rely a lot more on braking to actually make up ground because uh, the bike was braking using the front wheel was was fine there was problems with engine braking but uh, as long as you were just using the front uh, the, the the front brake it was fine but that meant that you were often overheating the front tire uh, sometimes pushing it too far and i think uh, as you say lamar was a real uh, example of what happens when you go wrong and all of those people you know washing out the front washing out the front end uh, pedrosa washing out the front end uh, reading washing out the front end it was really obvious that that was what where the problem was uh, so going back to pedrosa uh, you mentioned pedrosa obviously what happened to pedrosa was really strange for him to turn up at qatar um had a good race um but not a great race and then in the evening to announce that that was it. He was leaving. He was uh, uh, off to get surgery and some very drastic surgery on his forearm. That must have been quite a shock. What was the, what was the atmosphere like uh, uh, at the time, Steve? Well, I remember uh, Honda came in and they basically said, there's going to be a, a press conference for Danny after the race. He won't take any questions, but he's got a statement to make. And all of us in the press room thought, I wonder what that's about, because obviously you'll usually have your, your debrief and things like that where we'll be able to get the chance to ask questions, see what they thought of their race. You saw Danny came off the bike and you knew that something wasn't quite right. 
you knew that he was injured, you knew that there was some sort of a problem. And I remember I turned to I turned to Peter McLaren and I said, Geez, Pete, I wonder is Danny gonna announce his retirement here? Because we knew he had the problems last year, we knew that he had issues in testing, and then we saw he had a major problem during the race. And, you know, initially Pete's laughing that away and he's there, nah, nah, it's not gonna be anything like that. But the more that we waited for the for the debrief, the more that we waited for Danny to make his statement the more everyone thought, wow, this could actually be the end of Pedroza's career. And by the time we went down and Danny read his statement and he said that he had, you know, major problem with arm pump and that he was going to have to have an operation. And he talked openly about the fact that if the operation wasn't successful, he wouldn't come back. And everyone in the paddock was thinking, you know, this is one of the, like, regardless of what anyone thinks of Danny for not winning the Premier Class title, he's one of the best 250 riders I ever saw. He's one of the best racers that's ever been in the Premier class. And you did see him strip back and he knew that this could be the end of his career. And everyone in the paddock is hoping that we'll see him back again. But there's also that realisation that, you know, this could be a great rider whose whose time was up. And, you know, luckily, Danny came back for Le Mans and in the second half of the year, he really came back to show how strong he can be. Yeah, um, it- I I wonder if his because he he has experience with this. He went through this with the uh, after he broke his collarbone at uh, Mategi and had it plated. I think that was two thousand and nine. Uh, he had it plated and then developed. Um, uh, I can't remember the exact the the, the exact phrase, but a, a, a sort of a, a syndrome which basically shut off the blood flow to his uh, uh, to his forearm and he was suffering as, as he rode he was losing strength and feeling from his uh, from his arms um and he just basically ended up uh, ended up racing you know not being able to race and uh i remember speaking to him at the time i think 2010 eventually he had the uh, plate taken off of his um, um collarbone and a screw removed and that just opened up the either the nerve or the uh, or the artery uh, which it had been blocking slightly and um it allowed him to ride again and he was uh, i remember talking just before that surgery and he was saying basically you know look i know this could be the end of my sur- this could be the end of my career because i can't carry on like this um and he was it was a it was great to see him you know Come back and and be really really strong uh, the the following year, so uh, I think perhaps that gave him a little bit of a better idea, a more stable understanding of of the issues which he faced. Uh, perhaps may helped him make a, a a a calmer, more controlled, more sensible decision for his future. Yeah, I think being able just to have that experience, draw on that, and then think in terms of how this is going to affect the next five years for him, how it's going to affect the rest of his career. I think being able to take yourself outside of that and see how difficult it could be to not be able to race at your full potential. Like Danny's he's made enough money. He's he's won fifty one Grand Prix. He's he's had enough success to know that the only thing that matters to him is winning another world title. And if he's not able to do that, I think he would have he would have walked away. Yeah. And luckily, he's been able to recover fully. His form in the last five or six races was really impressive. I think he had, from Aragon onwards, he had four podiums in those five races. He won two Grand Prix, 
and he really showed that for next year he should be very strong as well and I think just being able to build on this over the winter and hopefully being able to be fully fit over the winter and train properly he should be able to start the season really strong yeah I mean it was interesting he basically wore the uh, uh, he was wearing a sleeve over his arm uh, all year long uh, or well uh, like a pressure bandage if you like uh, he was wearing that all year long and it, it, you know we kept asking do you still need that bandage and he sort of said he sort of admitted that he didn't really need it, but it just made him feel better, if you like. Uh, it meant that he felt he recovered more quickly with it on. And uh, that, I think, again, as Tony was saying, it played into his confidence and it made him uh, um, it made it easier for him to ride and to race at, at this kind of level. Um, right, let's uh, turning to Ducati because I mean Ducati had the strangest of seasons really up uh, uh, ups and downs. They started incredibly strong, uh, podiums I think in the first three races, uh, and then it went uh, it sort of all turned around. It, it did for Dovi at least. Dovi obviously started the season uh, particularly strongly, as you say, David with. Um podiums was it second place at the first three races is that is that right am i right i think so yeah with my yeah. statistic yeah it's unusual i normally get things like that wrong <laughs> and uh and then uh, the second half of the season for dovi just went the completely wrong direction and we saw uh ianone uh really develop into a major a major threat and uh at this stage looking ahead to next season um if you were going to pick a guy to win a, a race for ducati you'd be you'd be picking I- ianone yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Ducati, Ducati boss uh, Claudio Domenicali has already said the goal for 2016 is to win two races, and um, uh, right now you would say Ian Oni. But um, I think at the beginning of the year, Ducati said, or uh, Dovicioso said that, or well, towards the end of the year, Dovicioso said that the beginning had been um, uh, a little bit deceptive because you know they started so strongly and much more strongly than anyone actually expected uh, and that gave uh, that, that gave the impression that you know they were going to be in it, in it right from the very start um but once the yamaha got a little bit uh, got a little bit better uh, once the honda improved then it meant they moved moved basically moved past uh, uh, ducati and it took ducati a, again the best part of the year to 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 catch up yeah i think when you look at ducati season You'd look at it, it's split in not so much two halves, but two sections of the season. Ianone, I think, was top five every race up until Brno. He may have finished sixth at one race, but top five for the others. And then from Silverstone onwards, it became more of a struggle. He was able to still compete at the front. He had a podium in Phillip Island. That was a great race, but there was a bit of bad luck for him as well. And the season started to to fall away a little bit from Ducati. As Honda got stronger, as Pedroza came back to fitness, you had both Yamaha riders strong. It just became more and more difficult to, to finish on the podium. Those are the four fastest bikes on the grid. Those are the four fastest riders on the grid. If they have a trouble-free free weekend, it's going to be very hard to, to beat them. At the start of the year, you know, you had Lorenzo having his problems in the first three races. You had the Honda being really difficult for Marquez. And then you had, you know, the Yamaha was strong the whole way through the season. Rossi showed that with his string of podiums just from the start of the year. But whenever you're able to take fortune from Lorenzo's problems, when you're able to take advantage of there only being one Repsol Honda for effectively the first four Grand Prix, 
then you're able just to see why the Ducati was able to have those strong results. I think there was a win to be had for Ducati this year, and if they win a race, they're able to look at it as a successful season. As it is, they probably rightfully look look at it and see that they had seven podiums. It's a good year, but it's not a, it's not a great year for, for the package they had. And I think Dovi especially will look at it and say, the early season races, he did really well, but from... I think it was Catalonia onwards, he really started to struggle. He had crashes in a few races and we just saw, we just saw him really not take the package on as we would have expected. And I think that's the big issue for Ducati is just to be able to show that they can develop on a par with Honda, with Yamaha. Uh, well, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think also the, it also illustrates the fact that motorcycle design is always such a, it's, so many compromises because last year the the 2014 bike was incredible on the brakes it's really really strong which really plays to Dovicioso's strengths uh Dovicioso is uh Brembo hand out these you know last best of the late breakers uh uh sheets at, at a lot of the races and Dovicioso is always you know either first or second up there um when the to the the GP15 uh, it cured the understeer issue. Uh, I, I remember Dovicioso at the Sepang, or, or well, after Sepang two, I think, saying uh, that he uh, turned the bike into the uh, into turn one at Sepang. The first time he got it out the out of the pits and found himself going over the inside of the uh, uh, of the of the dirt on turn one because he was used to using he was using too much force to try and turn the thing into the corner. Um, but that's how much easier it was to actually turn it. Uh, but the the compromise what they had to give up for that ability to turn the bike was some stability in braking and I, I think Dovicioso especially suffered much more than that from that than Ian Oni did for example. Yeah even from the Qatar test I think the Ducatis were fastest in that test and we all went to Qatar for the race expecting them to be able to compete for the wins and I remember I was talking to Dovi after the test and, and he said you know I think we're, we're going to be quick enough we can challenge but winning the race is going to be very difficult and he knew even at that early stage of the year that picking up a win would be difficult because he was already saying those issues that he was having with the, with braking stability i think as the year progressed i think everyone expected them to have been able to solve that problem but if you look at how far they've come along in the last two years it's difficult to make that extra step during the season whenever you're not going to bring out a gp15-2 gp15-3 like they did with the GP14, you're going to still have the inherent flaws of the bike because every bike is a compromise. You see it with Honda this year. They they went to try and have a bike that was very powerful and a bike that was going to be able to go around the corners quicker than the Yamaha and instead they ended up with a bike that was probably too powerful and that they couldn't tame to be able to, to allow the rider of confidence. So you can go too aggressive or else you can go a little bit too conservative. I think Ducati were probably right where they should have been this year and now the big task is to see if Gigi and the rest of the guys can actually come up with a package to bring them forward for next year. Yeah, I mean they've got to go into 2016 a lot feeling a lot more confident than they did to 2000 and, uh, uh, 2015 with a, a much better idea of exactly what they need to do. Uh, whereas you know the GP15 was brand new from from the engine up. Uh, nothing was they kept nothing from the from the previous bike, and so that really uh, they had an awful lot of work to do, and they had to do it all during the season. And uh, to their credit, they, they they still made some really really big steps. Yeah, and I think you'd have, to, to, you'd, sorry, 
So I was just going to say, you'd have to assume at the at the start of the season, with the way they started, is just everybody in that team must have taken such a huge confidence boost from the fact that the the bike had had hit the track and they'd hit the track running with uh, something that actually would work and. That must have just been a massive lift for the riders, which you could see in, in their early season performance. Yeah, not and the same for the crew. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, not just the riders, the crew, also the engineers back in Bologna. It's a lot easier mm. to put in the long hours and, um, uh, you know, do the do the overtime, miss out on, you know, your kids' birthdays or whatever, if you know that uh, it's actually making a difference on the, on out on the racetrack if you're doing it and you're still circulating around in sort of you know eighth ninth tenth position then it gets a lot a lot more difficult yeah i think uh, sorry dave just i think that the one thing about the ducati that sort of shows how much progress they made this year was that scott redding jumped onto the bike at valencia and the Haref test as well and instantly said gp15 was a big step forward compared to the the honda that he had been riding it gave him a lot more confidence and he, and you could see it on track. He looked an awful lot sharper. He looked like he was in control of the bike, that he was able to say, you know, how he wanted to ride the bike as opposed to the Scott riding that we saw for most of this year where he was having to be very tentative with the bike. He wasn't, he didn't look natural with it. He already looks natural on the GP15. So that's one big indication of just how much progress Ducati made this year. Yeah, and how easy it was uh, to actually ride the bike this year, uh, you know, for for Dovicioso and for for Ian Oni. Uh, turning to Suzuki because that was the the other big story. Uh, Suzuki came with uh, 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 Alessius Bagaro and Maverick Vinales and did um, certainly a much better job than I expected, but also. Um, Slightly, almost, they were so good they were disappointing because they seemed to be so close uh, to actually, you know, podiums and wins. But but they the bike was just missing a couple of really crucial steps. Yeah, I think you know Brivio put together a really good team. He brought back some elements that were with Suzuki before the left Grand Prix, and then an awful lot of new people, and they gelled really from the outset. I think. Being able to spend last year testing helped them to iron out an awful lot of the kinks, but uh, it's only once you get into a racing environment that you really start to push yourself and push the bike and develop everything. And I think that for the most part for this year, I think they did a great job. If you look at uh, Catalonia, they qualified one and two, and obviously an awful lot of that comes from being able to use the soft tyre. But we also saw off the start of that race just how how much they were lagging behind in terms of horsepower. I think uh, Aleish and Maverick just shot straight back. I think Aleish was eighth going into turn one or something like that. And it just showed just how much grunt they were giving up. And then once they got the new engine on, we did see a bit of an improvement for that. But it was probably too much to hope for that they'd really solve all their problems just with a couple of upgrades through this year. For next year, they've already tested the seamless shift gearbox. So they'll have that from the Sepang test and that should make them an awful lot stronger as well. Um, especially we saw Yamaha had the change it made for under braking. So you put those kind of advantages onto the GSX-X Aurora and I think that uh, you'd have to imagine that especially with Vinales that they'd be really strong next year because it's hard to, it's hard to look at some, at a rookie now and, uh, be more impressive than uh, what Marquez did. But I think Vinales came in and he surprised everyone with just how impressive he was, how quickly he adapted to the bike. And by the time we got to Assen, he looked 
like he had been in MotoGP for years. When you stand trackside and you look at him, he'd remind you an awful lot of Lorenzo with his style and uh, just his, his consistency was impressive. But there's also rough edges there for him as well because if you were to focus him focus on him on the opening laps of races, you always see him drop back. He's not combative enough maybe or not confident enough on that opening lap, whereas I'd say next year we'll see him make a big step forward in that. And that's really the only weakness that uh, you'd, you'd pinpoint from his rookie year. Yeah, I mean, Tony, you saw him, uh, well, I suppose you saw almost his entire learning process this year. How did you see Maverick Vinales on the Suzuki? Um, it's, it's as Steve said, as the season uh, has wore on, he, you could see his, his confidence increasing. I think that by the end of the season, the thing that was holding him back most was the, the package underneath him. Um, I, I remember saying to you, David, when, uh, during the, the test, I was, was going out and I was... Just incredibly impressed with him, particularly at turn three in uh, Valencia, the way he was was going through there. He was more sideways than anybody else, but in control. And then he would enter turn four, and every time it looked like he was going to crash. It was just the just the the style and the technique that he had, but he never did, and it was just spectacular to watch. Yeah, certainly, and definitely. I mean, to me, the biggest lack was the was the lack of a seamless gearbox. Uh, I think that was really the factor that that saw. Uh, um, them really lose such a lot on the off the line, and I think the the, the start of Catalonia was really the uh, uh, sort of proof that 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 was what was lacking. Um, with um, getting the seamless next year, it should really be it should be very interesting. I mean, they need a bit more power, but uh, they really um, uh, the, the seamless gearbox should make a a, a really really big difference. Mm. And he's yeah, a, he's a guy. Sorry, yeah. I was just going to say he's a guy that I enjoy um, taking pictures and looking looking back through pictures of because of his style and his technique. It's a very photogenic style, like I say. He's sideways out of corners and um, very aggressive looking, and it does make for, he does make for a, an excellent photograph. Yeah, I think the the one thing about Vinales as well is if you were to look at the season, the best race of the year was Phillip Island, probably one of the best races we've ever seen. And Vinales finished sixth, and he was he was less than seven seconds from the race leader. I think he was 13, 12 or thirteen seconds up the road from Alesh in that race, and uh, he finished pretty much in that scrap with Pedroza and comfortably ahead of Crutchlow and things like that. And in a race like that, where basically it came down to who was able to manage their bike, who was able to just be adaptable during the race. That was one race that really stood out for me from Vinales. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of Philip Island, I mean, we need to get on to the second half of the season. The, I mean, the first half was interesting, but you, it seemed to be, you know, pretty cut and dried. Rossi seemed to have a um, uh, have the, the the season under control. He was managing races extremely well. He was winning when he wanted to, or he was winning when he could, and and getting on the podium when he couldn't. Uh, Lorenzo was really starting to come back, um, but the second half, it it well, it almost got weird. It was it was back and forth. It was very very exciting. It was very very tense, um, but it was it got really almost strange. I think. I think some one thing that you said, uh, David, when we. Uh, after Aragon and, and as as everybody headed away for the flyaways, that those flyaways were were the key and. Um, and that obviously proved to be the case, and particularly the the battle at Phillip Island. If Rossi had been able to get a podium in that battle, 
and gone into Sepang and kept his head uh, as opposed to the accusations that flew around and then obviously what happened in the race. But, I mean, these are all ifs, buts and maybes. But, I mean, like I say, I go back to what you said about the flyaways being key and that certainly turned out to be the case. Yeah, it, it seemed to me that uh, the pressure got to, or well, perhaps the, the, the pressure, just the strain of the entire season, that was what really uh, got to Rossi, the fact of, of trying to keep um, the concentration up um also feeling that he could feel that the, that the championship was there. It was there for the taking. But every time it felt like he was getting a little bit closer, Lorenzo would come back. And exactly, this is exactly the same pressure that, that Lorenzo had, only he had it the other way, uh, the other way around. And I think um, uh, what was interesting was Danny Kent saying to, in the second half of the season that it's easier to chase than it is to lead because when you're chasing, you have a lot less to lose. Whereas w- when you're leading, you know, you've got your hands on the prize, but you know that it can be taken away from you at any time. Yeah, I think that... The- the one thing about racing and, and most sports really is there's only two states you're going to be in. You're either going to be applying pressure or you're going to be absorbing pressure. And it's always been interesting whenever you look at, like, Rossi's a great champion. He's won nine titles. But it was something that, uh, obviously, Casey Stoner's always keen to put the knife in with Rossi. <laughs> but he, he, he did say it that, like, Rossi's titles always came before the last race of the year seasons where he was quite dominant seasons where he was able to basically go to the last three rounds knowing he was going to win the championship and this year we saw a completely different side of Rossi the first half of the year I think he looked every inch the champion and we were all excited to see something like that at the end of the day like most of us when we got into Grand Prix racing it was probably when Rossi was just coming up through the ranks and you get you gravitate towards success everyone likes watching Rossi from when they were kids as we got older, I think it's you, you start to change. You, you've got your own opinions then on what you like to see as a rider, what you like to see on track, like what you want to see as a racer. But this year, Rossi, for the first time in five years, he looked like he could win a championship. He looked ready for it. But once we got to, you know, Mizano, that race at Mizano, that's where he, he started to lose his grip in the championship. I think after Silverstone, we all thought, that's it, that's cut and dry. Rossi's going to win the championship. But once we went to the flyaways, once we went to Aragon, you could see a shift starting to develop. That fight with Pedroza at Aragon, he didn't, he wasn't able to to come out on top of that fight. You know, we're used to seeing him duck back on people and just duff them out, force them wide, and and just win those kind of battles. This one, he tried to do that, but Pedroza was too good for him. He was able to hold them off, and then by the time we got to the flyaways. He just didn't look as confident. You'd, you'd talk to him at debriefs and, you know, he was saying all the right things, but he didn't seem to have the same air of confidence that he had after Silverstone, after, you know, Aston, those kind of races where you looked at him and you thought, no, that's the man that's going to win the championship. And I know that me and you talked about it a lot, David. And we always said that Rossi didn't look like a man that would lose the championship, but he didn't look like a man that would win the championship either. Whereas Lorenzo looked like a man that would really take command in the late season and have the kind of performances that a champion needs to have in those final races. Because even though there's 25 points up for grabs in the first race, 25 points up for grabs in the last race, they're an awful lot more important in that final third of the year. Yeah, and you're 
well, you're a lot more tired. You've been through a lot more throughout the season. Everything has been going on throughout the entire season. So it's a lot more difficult to actually maintain your concentration and to maintain your, uh, I'm not even sure what the word is, your desire, your um, your focus. I think perhaps focus is probably the right word. It's so much more difficult to, to maintain your focus at the at the end of the season than it is uh, at, at the start of it, and uh, I mean, I, uh, I uh, after the Bruneau race, I I said, well, the the winner here, which was Lorenzo, will win the championship. Um, I was convinced of it then. Uh, but the next race, I think, was Silverstone, where um, uh, where Rossi won convincingly, and I was convinced that I got it totally wrong. And so it was, but for me, it, it was like that. As an observer, it was like that throughout all of those last races because again uh, we got to Mategi and um, Rossi put in an absolutely brilliant race um, to finish second behind uh, Pedrosa but the way he managed it the way he managed his tyres the way he managed the conditions uh, the way that he uh, passed uh, Lorenzo and basically disposed of him um, I thought okay that settled it that is th- th- these these were the really crucial points but he looked so incredibly tired when he got off the bike at, uh, at Mategi you could see how much uh, strain that race had put on him yeah I think if you were to look at the Mutegi especially again it's another example where Lorenzo was able to say I lost this race because of something else it was a wet race and that's what he can pin his blame on for losing that race. But if you were to go from Indianapolis, Bruno, Silverstone, Mizano, all those races in the dry, Lorenzo and Marquez were so much faster than Rossi. And it looked inevitable that if we had, uh, you know, trouble free races, that those two guys would win the races. And I think that's why by the time we got to Motagi, you'd see that tiredness on Rossi because it's very difficult to know that you have to be at your limit. And only finish third and still be able to contend for a championship. Like so much of them racing goes on between the ears and it just comes down to who can manage themselves best. And I think Rossi did a great job of managing his expectations, managing what he could do and maximizing his points up until Aragon. But once we started going to the flyaways, you could see how much more difficult it was getting. Pedroza was getting quicker. You had Ianone getting in and in and amongst those front runners too. And it just started to be much more of a strain because this year was like no other year for Rossi. If you look back through his whole career, whether it's 125s, 250s, 500s, 990s, 800s, every year he's had where he was a title contender, he was only up against one guy. You know, it could have been Gibernau, it could have been Kenny Roberts, it could have been Casey or whoever. He was only ever up against one guy and he was able to focus his attention on that guy. Whereas this year, whenever you've got... Marquez also strong, Pedroza strong and taking points off the title contenders. It just made it that much more difficult for him. And I think that's really the story for me of the year was just how difficult it was to actually win a title because there's that much competition in the in the field now. Absolutely. Uh, Tony, could you see in your portraits, because obviously you do a lot of portraits, well, you know, portrait photography, you're shooting people sitting in the pits a lot. Uh, can you see? Can you see in their faces... The, when you look back through your photos, do you see a progression of 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 the year taking its toll on them? Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about that actually, and um, I think I posted a picture on social media in the build up to uh, the Valencia race, and a picture of Rossi in the garage with his, with his 
with it with one hand on his head and he did look like a man who was was feeling the pressure uh and looking back and thinking about it um Lorenzo certainly looked like a guy who was handling the pressure a lot better the when you would look into the garage the conversation would obviously be at times be be stressed but you would expect that when you're in the middle of a pit pits trying to get their bike sorted but yeah looking looking into the garages um and looking and thinking back through photographs as the season wore on, the, the pressure did certainly seem to start to show on, on Valentino's face. Uh, yeah, we talked about Ian o, or well, Steve, you mentioned Ian Oney. Um, the, was perhaps Ian Oney's pass on Rossi, was the, the fact that Ian Oney beat him at, at Phillip Island, was that perhaps the decisive mo- moment in the, in the championship? No, I think you, you'll have to look at it and say the decisive moment is the Sepang press conference. That's where Rossi lost the championship. On track, maybe you could make a claim to say that, uh, you know, Ian only going past may have upset his rhythm and things like that. But at the end of the day, he still finished fourth that day. He was still in the position to, to finish on the podium. But... By the time we got to Sepang, all that was forgotten about and all that mattered was what Rossi said on the Thursday. I think that forced Marquez into a, into a position where he probably didn't want to be in. He didn't want to have to, he didn't want to have to be the focus of attention. And then after you get called out like that, then he has to come out all guns blazing. And I think if, if Rossi doesn't make those statements in the press conference, I think he stands a better chance of winning the championship. I think. I'd focus on that far more before I'd focus on anything that actually happened on track, to be honest. Yeah, but um, I mean, my thought process was uh, Ian only beating Rossi means that Rossi ends up fourth there. It, uh, all these, it, it's like, you know, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. There's all this pressure building, building, building. And then the difference between third and fourth is all of a sudden the championship is uncomfortably close and uh, uh, certainly the, I mean the, the the press conference at Sepang was uh, as someone watching it at home was just completely bizarre because at first I thought he was joking but then it, he just looked deadly serious what was the atmosphere actually like in the press room everyone was shocked <laughs> you know I think I, I, I turned around and I looked through the whole room and it's a small press room in Sepang but it was absolutely packed with people and you look around and you just got this look of just absolute shock in the room. It's one of those things that takes a bit of time for everyone to actually realise what's just been said. And then they all think, did he really say that? And then like all hell break, breaks loose after a statement like that. And I think no one could, I think especially because it was Rossi as well, no one could really believe that he had said it. But whenever he's got his lap charts and everything like that, you're just there. No, he's gone in to make this statement. And I think everyone was taken aback by it. Tony, what did you think of it? I was, uh, I was just a bit perplexed by the whole situation. I, I didn't go into the press conference. I was sat outside and then um, um, I don't know. I don't think I was paying it much attention to start with until the mumbling started going around about what he was saying. So I then started, started paying a bit more attention to it. And like you said, Steve, really could not believe that he'd said it. And um there was several schools of thoughts about what what the thought process was behind it, whether whether it was to 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 make Marquez angry and fight at the front with uh, with Lorenzo, and it just obviously backfired on him horribly. And I'm sure I'm sure now, uh, one if he regrets one thing, 
over the season it would be that that and uh, that weekend but no I was completely gobsmacked but as most people I thought he was joking yeah as Mark Marquez the, thought because certainly watching it on he TV, was laughing wasn't he yeah he, he, yeah the, the look on his face was um what's all this joking about and he, he really didn't sort of sink in no and and uh, I mean we've covered this before haven't we and um and there was just no substance to it because if Marquez had intended to help Lorenzo, uh, why would he have gone and put in the fastest lap of the race in the last lap to win the race? Uh, as and L- Lorenzo joked as much, didn't he? No, he only really helped me on the final lap. So it was uh, the whole thing was just bizarre, and it just it almost smacked of desperation a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, by the time the race happened and the, and the clash between Rossi and and Marquez. Uh, I don't think anyone was particularly well. You saw it happen. You were a little bit shocked, but then you, th- uh, you know, a few minutes. Later, well, yeah, obviously that was going to happen. It was it was inevitable that the, you know the the two biggest egos in the paddock were going to we're not going to stand for this, and we're going to end up um, uh, in a painful and unpleasant situation. Yeah, and what's it they say about don't poke the bear? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and uh, Valentino very definitely poked the bear that weekend, didn't he? And the bear bit him in the ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was probably the biggest surprise. <laughs> what that the bear bit him in the ass? Yeah, or, yes, or... exactly. Because bears have always previously always rolled over. Uh, uh, but <laughs> but yeah, the, the, this is a bear who can uh, who can uh, you know beat him on track. They can both beat each other on track, and that's the trouble. You know, when it's uh, when you, it's easy to play mind games on riders who you are who you know you can beat. You know, any well nine times out of ten. But you have to say that Mark Marquez can probably beat Rossi, well, at least six times out of ten. So then it gets a lot more difficult. Yeah, I think if you were to look at it and you were to say, who's the one rider you don't want to piss off? I'd be picking Mark because he's fast, he's aggressive, he's he's just too talented to give him a reason to want to get involved in things. And, you know, you you, you make a statement like that and, and you deserve whatever comes from it. And he he poked the bear as Tony said and like Mark straight away that whole weekend you could see once it all sunk into him once he knew exactly what had happened he was just he was going to do whatever it took to basically I wouldn't say annoy Rossi but in the race in even FP3 on the Saturday whenever he was looking for a toe you know the two boys are just sitting there on the on the line waiting for the other guy to go just as they can set their lap time, and they're just sitting there stalking each other. It was just like what you see in the, in cycling and track cycling, where you're waiting for the other guy to go, and then you'll follow him. And it was it was class. It was just great theatre for all of us. And then obviously, in on the race day, then that theatre became very different. And you know there was there was elements in that fight that both guys, I'm sure, would would want to take back. But there's also things in it that like their characters would not let them take that back. Rossi's not going to give an inch. Marquez isn't going to give an inch. They're both going to try and just destroy the other guy, and that's exactly what happened on Sunday. You know, they, they went out and they were they were adamant that they were going to stamp their authority on this fight. That's why you had Mark making his moves like they were aggressive moves, but they were clean. He didn't make contact, and then you had uh, Rossi just going straight back through as well. And I think you know you talk to you talk to Marquez about it, and he's adamant that. Uh, Rossi created this whole situation and 
he said that at Sepang he waited to see how Rossi was going to ride. Um, once Rossi got back in front, when he saw that Rossi was making mistakes, when he saw his foot coming off the pegs, he was he was thinking that he was just losing too much time and he wanted to attack and get uh, and get in front of him. And that's what he said was his reasons for his moves being so aggressive. But uh, like either way, there's a bit of blame on both parties, but the, the vast majority of the blame has to be on Rossi for everything that happened. If anything, is the blame has to be on him for, for getting distracted. You know, you, you think about the championship and not about um, uh, someone else trying to mess you. You know, if you believe that someone else is is trying to mess you about, you ignore the person who's trying to get you mess you about and just get on with your race and and try and get the points that you need to try and win the championship. Yeah, I think especially after the year that Rossi had, where everything was building towards, I'm going to get the most amount of points every weekend I can. He'd finish third, he'd finish second if he couldn't win. Even Aragon, he finishes fourth, but he gets everything he can from the bike on that day. But then this one moment, it all got too much for him and it looked like he just, he lost sight of what the end goal was. The end goal is to be the champion in Valencia. And I think all that's happened from this is he's he's now, he's going to incur the wrath of Marquez for the rest of his career. You can't imagine them really burying the hatchet. And no, I mean, you know, we spoke to uh, we spoke to Marquez at at the Super Prestigio, and he sort of he was saying, you know, he'd like to put this behind him, and he was he was happy that uh, Rossi had uh, uh, dropped the, uh, the 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 case at the CAS, but uh, at the Court of of Arbitration for Sport. But um, uh, even then, yeah, I mean, they they're never going to be on each other's Christmas card lists again, are they? No, no, they don't. It looks like uh, any friendship that was there before has gone now, and maybe maybe it will take Rossi retiring before they maybe get on cordial terms again. Uh, yeah, I would say Rossi retiring and um, uh, well, possibly Rossi retiring and someone coming up and beating uh, beating Marquez. Then perhaps uh, Rossi will be a little bit more uh, uh, that will turn his attitude. Yeah, make his make his attitude a little bit more uh, a little bit more positive towards Marquez but that's that's still a long way off uh, I think the one thing as well sorry Dave I think the one thing as well is that uh, do you want them sharing postcards do you want them sh- sending Christmas cards with each other I don't no. I want them to be like Rainy and Schwanz I want them to be going in just kicking off any chance they get I want them to be going in there and attacking each other because when we turned up at Valencia Tony I think you were in a half ten or something like that into the press room and it was already full you know there was, oh, yeah, there was five or six hundred journalists there and we don't get that at a MotoGP race. But no, exactly. It, and uh, yeah, it, it was all over. I mean, people living in Holland where MotoGP really is a, uh, a minority sport, um, uh, people who know nothing about motorcycle racing were, uh, you know, that they were my wife's gardening customers, you know, who are generally, and I'm sure they'll excuse me for saying so, are generally they're old ladies. Um, uh, they were asking me uh, all about what was going on with between Rossi and Marquez and, and, and Lorenzo. And so this is, uh, uh, this eventually is, is definitely good for the sport because it, it, it really raised the profile of it. And it was, it was all over the main news bulletins instead of being demoted to, uh, you know, 15 seconds of, um, uh, of sports results at the end of the at the end of the sports news. 
Yeah, I think we talked about that at the time, didn't we, David? And then, and something we've been talking about recently is um, the state of World Superbike, and that's exactly what they need is, is something like that to happen to boost the profile of that one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you really need to, you you really need some. Uh, what you really need is is someone for the fans to hate. And again, I think I've said this before. What we really need is for. Um, uh, uh, for Jorge Lorenzo to turn into Carl Fogarty because Fogarty really, really fed off the hatred of um, of the fans who wanted him to lose uh, and turn that into something incredibly positive. And uh, I think if Lorenzo could do that, then he'd be he'd be absolutely massive. He'd be uh, it would be really, really positive for him uh, and for the championship. And then yeah, the same in World Superbikes. Something something similar needs to to happen in World Superbikes. But it's I'm not sure how you can force that but that i think that's a discussion for another day really that's a, uh, that's a very very complicated uh, a very very complicated situation um the obviously it all came down to the valencia race uh just briefly give me give me you, your brief impressions of the of the of the valencia race first steve and then tony i think it was another one of those races that was was really good you know i think we can all look at it and we can say that Mark didn't make an attempt to, to overtake Lorenzo. But how often do you see anyone overtaking at Valencia? This was just another example where Lorenzo gets the pole, gets the lead into turn one and just leads every lap. He's done it time and time again this year. Rossi wasn't able to compete with that on the same bike. The only person that's actually been able to take a win from Lorenzo was Marquez at Indianapolis. And uh, at even Phillip Island's a bit different because there is overtaking opportunities there. But Indianapolis, I think, would be the only one that would be a bit similar to Valencia, a similar kind of track for, for most most of the part. And, you know, Mark, I want to believe that he tried to make a move, but he just was too far back on the last lap. I think there's a few things, you know, you talk to ex-riders and they're pretty adamant that he made no attempt to overtake. And you got to take what they say with an awful lot more confidence than anything any of us think we've never been on a on a race bike in a MotoGP and know what's going through their minds but I, I do believe that Mark probably looked at it and he, he tried to win but ultimately Lorenzo just like he was for most of the year was too fast and too consistent to actually be able to compete with yeah I think as Steve's as Steve said um it's difficult for me to believe as well that uh, Marquez didn't want to go out and win that race to me it looked like he was trying everything he could to stay with Lorenzo but Lorenzo just was just so imperious all weekend and uh, to put in the performance he did under the uh, I mean let's not forget Marquez put him under a huge amount of pressure all race but as you say Steve um, the people who have been in that position and know an awful lot more about racing the motorcycle than I do were pretty skeptical of of his performance on the day but I still don't believe that Mark has sat there and didn't at some point want to make a move. And I know, David, that um, you'd spoken to, to people from, from Honda who had said that uh, he was really, really disappointed that Pedroza had gone past him on the last lap because his plan all along was to try and put a move in on the last lap. And Yeah, I mean, it was Marquez knew that if he didn't win that race, if he didn't finish ahead of Lorenzo, um, then he was going to be. I mean, he'd already had so much. Um, 
criticism and hatred and, and vilification in the press, uh, in uh, especially from fans. And he knew that if he didn't win that race, it would uh, it was going to get a thousand times worse. Um, uh, I think. I mean, I, I had a long conversation with I think uh, I think on Monday with Neil Hodgson, and he said he thought that Marquez could have passed him. Um, well, he, he said he could see that Marquez was on the limit, but he could also clearly see that Marquez w- could have passed him going into turn six, which is the uh, the, 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 the the first left hander after the two right hand uh, after the two right handers. So you could cl- clearly see he was faster than him there. But then again, if you look at the rest of the track, it was I mean, especially the last corner, it was so impressive how much faster the Yamaha was out of that corner. Um, than outer uh, than than the Honda was. The Honda was losing so much down the straight that it was just uh, or out of that car corner and into the first to, into the first half of the straight um, that it was just unreal. So I think it, it seemed that Marquez knew that um, there was no point passing him on passing Lorenzo on you know lap thirteen or fourteen. Because Lorenzo would have been back straight back down the front straight again. Um, so he was, Marquez said himself at the time, uh, he was trying to race like uh, like Indianapolis, wait for the last uh, uh, the last one or two laps, and then uh, make the pass and try and defend it. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Danny Perosa got uh, uh, got caught up, I think, on the on the penultimate lap, and that basically just puts. Uh, Marquez too far back to actually try and make the pass that he'd been planning to uh, to make. So, yeah, I mean, you have to. Did Marquez really try and hand this to Lorenzo? I don't think he did. You have to take you have to take his word. You have to believe that he that you know he's a motorcycle racer and he he was trying to beat people. But yeah. will we ever know the truth? Not until not until Marquez writes his autobiography after he's after he's retired, I think. But uh, it seems uh, knowing if you look at what Marquez was doing uh, earlier in the year, that he was willing to risk crashing um, for that, that he was willing to uh, you know take take so many risks just to try and win. It seems impossible that he would actually throw throw you know victory away i he has his ego is too large to be handing away uh, uh handing victory to to other riders he likes winning too much but yeah i remember at the time like i thought i didn't see anything when i watched the race live that made me think that mark had been overly protective of lorenzo or hadn't been aggressive enough i did think that losing that time with pedroza had cost him the chance of a win but then on the Monday, whenever I was talking to Haji down at the track, you know, he's telling me the racer's perspective and, you know, he talked to some of the other guys and they do, they do bring you around to their line of thinking. It's, it's at the end of the day, it's what they've done for their whole life is race. So they're able to bring you into the mindset of what Mark would have been thinking at that time. Then I talked to Mark for 40 minutes at the Hareth test and all of his reasons, all of his logic, it's all dead sound. You know, there was there was a a big thought in the entire press room after the race that something stinks of shit here, but there's not enough proof to actually have that stick to the wall, and I think that was the big issue with with Marquez at the end of the year is that you've got an awful lot of accusations, but there's no proof. 
and that's what's going to make it sort of rule on on until until a time whenever you know if he if he admits that he didn't didn't try and make a move that's the only time it'll end but from my conversations with him i can't imagine him admitting that i think he's shown time and again that winning is all that matters to him and i can't believe that he would willingly just give up a grand prix win so that someone else can win a championship because at the end of the day and I, I I said it to him whenever I was interviewing him. You know, him, him and Lorenzo have never looked like friends. They've never looked like he'd do anything to sort of go out of his way to help Lorenzo. And Mark just laughed it off and said, "Yeah, exactly." Yeah, I mean, but, he but, did, uh, absolutely. If there is one rider you would expect uh, uh, Marquez to actively try and sabotage, then it would be then it would be uh, uh, Lorenzo rather than Rossi. Yeah, and and also looking back at the race, the the thing that makes me sceptical about those accusations is why he would ride so hard and put so much pressure on Lorenzo for the entire race. Uh, Okay, he didn't try and make a move, but maybe his plan the whole along was to make the move on the last lap because he couldn't didn't think he could put a move in and get away. But he, it's if 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 he was really not wanting to put the pressure on, he would have dropped back one or two seconds behind and. He was right behind him the whole race, putting him under a huge amount of pressure. Yeah, and to uh, uh, to Lorenzo's pressure or to Lorenzo's credit, he never faltered. He never caved into that pressure. Uh, he just kept looking forward and, and and racing hard, and you know, putting pressure on the on the riders behind him. So, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was an, it was. I think what is getting lost in all this is what an incredible performance. That was in the last race by Lorenzo to actually win yes. that win that championship because uh, he withstood so much pressure all weekend uh, to actually claim to actually claim the title. Yes, absolutely. Uh, right. Well, we've been going on for quite some time. Um, I think we'll wrap up with just uh, uh, one last thing, which is the favourite memory from 2015. Uh, first of all, Steve. My favourite memory might be quite different to Tony's memory of it, <laughs> but the one thing that's going to stand out for me was being involved in a car crash in Malaysia with Tony. <laughs> 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 and uh, basically, the important things to remember is we found the limit of the rental car, and because we we managed to take it back to the uh, back to the car rental, it doesn't constitute a real crash. So that was my favourite memory of the year. Tony, how was it from the passenger seat? Did you feel the same way? Um, you could probably smell uh, my feelings from the passenger seat, Steve, when we slapped into the central reservation. Um, uh, it's certainly uh, a good story. I'm not sure it would rank highly highly on my favourite moments of the year, but seeing our friend Stephen's face when I got back and, uh, and told him that we'd involved in a car crash because we'd been gone about an hour longer than we said... He was a bit surprised. He was. A, he wasn't actually surprised at all. Yeah. Well, I'm, was, I'm was, supposed to be. Uh, I'm supposed to be staying with you guys, and um, and one of you two will be r- driving a bloody car in uh, in Sepang for the test. So uh, this, in, this in is fairness, not making me feel at all uh, at all confident in the. In entire... fairness, David, I'm a significantly better driver than Malaysian Steve. <laughs> <laughs> is that hard? No, no, not really. No, no. Normal Steve is okay, but Malaysian Steve is a nut job. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, uh, Tony, your favourite moment of the year? Um, my favourite moment of the year uh, would just be would be the weekend at Austin. I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed going to Austin and um, 
It was the start of my uh, pool dominance for the year over Steve, <laughs> who just got destroyed everywhere we played pool this year. Um, so, but yeah, it was just a really, really great, enjoyable weekend. And uh, I always enjoy going to races in America, but Austin in particular is one that I enjoy. Because the racetrack, the atmosphere in Austin downtown, what is it? Yeah, it's the. I, th- I enjoy the racetrack, um, and plus, uh, it's one race where I actually get a scooter, so I can be lazy. I don't have to walk around, and it's a big, big track. To, if you're trying to walk around that one, uh, and the atmosphere in the city, and it, it, it is a nice city, and uh, I just enjoy everything about that weekend. Plus, the the hospitality from the uh, the circuit of the Americas, as as you guys all know, we get very well looked after with free food, f- lots of. Lots of uh, free water and drinks, and uh, and we don't have to pay for the internet. So yeah, exactly. Free food and free internet is basically it, it's like MotoGP journalist idea of heaven, isn't it? Basically, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean we we can we complain about internet, but um, our colleagues in in F one, I, I saw um, one of the one of the high profile photographers from F one going on and saying that it costs seven hundred pounds for for crap internet in Brazil recently, which is just defies belief. Yeah, exactly. You could actually buy your own internet service provider for that. It's just, uh, it was absolutely astonishing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think my favourite moment was, um, this was really the first year that I started actually going down uh, onto the grid, and I I can't remember which race it was that I actually went down. I I was certainly down at Bruno. I think I might have been down at... um, at Barcelona as well, and actually going onto the grid during the MotoGP race, the atmosphere is absolutely electric. It's just not something you can really explain. You actually have to to be there, and it's absolutely something you miss from watching it on TV and watching it in uh, even in the media center. In the media center, you're usually overlooking the, uh, uh, the pit lane and uh, pit lane and the, and the starting straight, and you can see all all of the activity out there. But you just don't get that same thrill, that that same sense of excitement as when you're actually walking down there amongst it. Presumably, Tony, you're used to it by now completely. Yeah, you don't want to get blasé about it because obviously it it is a it is a privilege to to be able to go down and and do something like that. But it, it does give you some insight, um, particularly of how much pressure someone like Valentino Rossi is under with the, the the amount of people that are around him before the start of a race, and he has his way of dealing with it. He does the same thing every race. He, crouches down next to the bike and tries to shut out as much of it as he can but uh, it's got to be difficult and, but something that Steve and I talked about was uh, is just just how many people are down there and uh, it is uh, in some in some races in particular it can be hard work trying to get around those grids yeah i mean look at it, looking out at it from the because with the valencia track in particular is great because it's got the little bal- uh, balcony in front of the press room um just looking out at the at the grid at Valencia, it was absolutely insane. You'd almost think, you know, they, uh, the 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 stands were completely packed, but you'd have thought there was almost as many people in uh, on that front straight as there were in the entire bloody stands. It was absolutely heaving. It's just and they'd and they'd limited the amount of people who could go on that grid as well. Yeah, exactly. I don't know where I don't know where, where they'd put them because there was clearly more on there than there had been at any other time of the year. Yeah, well, presumably they limited them simply by the laws of physics that it wasn't possible of actually to actually cram any more people in there. 
So uh, yeah, as many VIPs on there as is humanly possible, and we'll remove the journalists. Right, right. Well, <laughs> thank you, uh, boys. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Tony. Um, thank you also to everyone for listening to this edition of the Paddock Pass podcast, which I just managed to say. If you enjoyed this show and you listen to it through iTunes, please leave us a rating and a review because that helps other people find the uh, the show. Um, remember to follow us on Facebook, which is uh, facebook.com slash podcast, and on Twitter at paddockpasspod. And from all of us, goodbye. Thank you. All right, lads. All right, Dave. Because I thought I'd better wrap up because it's 10 to whatever it is time you're supposed to be going uh, out. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, that's only a rough time. But it's just I need to go out and deliver some parcels to some fuckwits <laughs> who, have the, who have the audacity to be out at work during the fucking day when I'm trying to deliver them. How very dare they? I know. How very... I know. How Do very... they not know who I am? <laughs> you're a busy man, T. I'm a busy man. Busy sitting on my ass. Exactly, exactly. You should be doing... You've got-